Well, good afternoon, everyone. It is a, my, name is, my name is Rob. Uh, I'm an ordinary member uh, of the church here. Uh, and, uh, and it is my pleasure and my privilege today to be able to preach to you uh, from the passage that Graham read to us earlier in our service today. Uh, I think it would be good both for me and for you for me to start by praying uh, to God and ask for his help as we come to his word. So let's do that now. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that as we sang there just now, it is finished. That Jesus, as he came and lived a life on this earth and died at the death that he did on the cross, cried, it is finished. Meaning that we can enjoy a relationship with God as we were meant to enjoy. Lord, we thank you for that glorious truth. And we thank you that it is that that brings us to church every week. It is that that inspires us and and, and encourages us to read your word and learn from it. And Lord, we pray today as we look at uh, at this chapter in the life of Isaac, we pray that you would you would speak through me and help us clearly to see the goodness and the riches of living in a relationship with you. Lord, we pray that you would bless my words, help me to see as I am am speaking that it is not in my strength and that standing at the front is not an exercise in showing off how much I can know. And Lord, I pray that as people see me talk from your word, they don't see me, but they see you. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Very good. Well, I don't know about you, but if you cast your mind back to the few moments ago when we read the story that we read, I don't know whether you felt a sense of deja vu. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Uh, It probably depends on how much you've been concentrating in the last few sermons that we've had. But if you have been following our sermons in Genesis that we have just started, you will remember that a few weeks ago, we looked at the life of a man called Abraham. And when we looked at his life, in one of those, well, in two of those stories, actually, we saw a man who travels in a foreign land. We saw a man who is afraid and ends up pretending that his wife is his sister. We saw a man who digs wells and makes foreign foreign covenants, sorry, covenants with kings called Abimelech. We see a man who is faithful at times and also quite faithless at times and who receives great blessings from God. Uh, If you can't remember those stories, you'll have to trust that that is what happened. (laughs) Uh, We've not made it up. Um, But as Graham read read, read this passage to us, you may have been thinking, I've kind of heard this story before. The story in Genesis that talks about the life of Abraham comes in chapters 12 to 22. uh, And that includes two what are are known as the wife-sister narratives of Genesis. In, In chapter 12 where Abraham goes to Egypt, and chapter 20. Luke gave us an overview of the Abrahamic narrative, and it can feel, as we read this story potentially, that the narrator of Genesis 
has sort of just run out of material. It can feel, as some scholars argue, that this story is just the same story from a different perspective. But I don't think that is the case. Uh, And I hope to, to talk why and show you why. Since we looked at the narrative of the life of Abraham, we've been dramatizing in Genesis the shift from Abraham to his son, Isaac. Uh, If you'll remember, just by way of recap, in chapter 23, Abraham's wife, Sarah, dies. In chapter 24, Isaac marries Rebekah, and in in, in a sense, the the matriarch of the Genesis story is replaced from Sarah to Rebekah. And then in chapter 25, Abraham himself dies, and we're introduced to Isaac and Rebekah's family. The transition is complete. Uh, And my task today is to lead you through the only story in the whole of the Bible that deals with Isaac directly. It's interesting that, isn't it? This is the only story that actually deals with Isaac specifically. Every other story just deals with his kids or his wife or his pets. There's no stories that deal with his pets. Um, But this is the only one that talks about Isaac alone. And yet, it's just a repetition of a previous story. So far, the narrative of Abraham has been concerned with promises, as you will know. Promises of of land, promises of seed, which means children and nation, and promises of blessing that will come to Abraham and his family. But at Abraham's death, you will notice that these promises have not really come to pass at all. Abraham had, been, had had a successful life in many ways, but by the time he had died, uh, he had very little actual land to his name, apart from the tomb that he was buried in. Uh, he had quite a number of children, but hardly a nation. Uh, and he had some material and wealth and blessing, but compared to the majority of the ancient empires, he was lacking. Abraham would really just be another nomadic warrior, king, shepherd type figure, vying for power in a complicated region with a little bit of success. So as we come to this story today, this narrative of Isaac, our questions are twofold, I think. The first relates to Isaac. What kind of man is this guy going to be in terms of God's promises? And then, and and how is Isaac going to respond to being the child of the promise? And then the second question relates to God. What kind of God is God going to be? So far, we've seen God promise things to Abraham that, on one level, haven't come true yet. (laughs) What kind of God is God going to be to Isaac? Is Abraham's family just going to be subsumed by another nation, and that's the end of the promises, and that's that? To answer these questions, the narrator gives us a story that has already happened in Genesis. And it's a possibly odd move. And to illustrate what I think the narrator is doing in this chapter, I would like to describe to you something that happens to me quite often in my life. In fact, it's something that happens to me quite often when I preach. It's a phrase that people sometimes say to me. I sometimes preach a sermon... And it's okay, I think, I hope. Uh, And I sit down, and someone will come up to me afterwards, and they'll shake my hand, and no one is allowed to say this to me afterwards, by the way. I won't speak to you. They say, just like your dad. (laughs) 
just like your dad. That's what they say. I don't know why they say this. Um, I don't try to particularly dress and model myself on my dad. I feel like I can make these jokes. We have a good enough relationship. Uh, if you are a visitor to our church, um, I hope I'm not being exclusive. My dad is right there. Um, you may not get those jokes. But people say this to me. Sometimes random people who I hardly know will say this to me. I'll be walking in the street, just minding my own business. And someone will come up and say, oh, you look just like your dad. And I'm thinking, what? I haven't tried to be. I'm not always sure whether it's a compliment or an insult. I guess it depends on whether you like my dad or not. But whether I like it or whether I try to be like my dad or not, or my mum or whoever, we all reflect our parents, whether we look like them or whether we behave like them. Often children will try to shrug this off. They will dress differently or they'll listen to different kinds of music. But we are always, always, to use a phrase from Genesis, the image of our parents, are we not? They stamp their likeness onto us in much the same way that we will stamp our likeness onto our children. It's a scary thought. In other words, like father, like son is the idiom that we use. Or like mother, like daughter. It's really the same. Now, the reason I say this is not just to make digs about my preaching being like my dad's. Uh, The reason I say all this is because I think that the point that this narrator is trying to get across to us is just this. Having painted a portrait of Abraham, the narrator wants us to see that Isaac is just like his dad. He has exactly the same strengths and exactly the same weaknesses. And I think that that accounts for a a good amount of the repetition in the chapter when we can see that what the narrator is trying to do is trying to say Isaac is not some sort of special guy. He's just like his dad. (laughs) So what what we're going to do now is we're going to look through the narrative itself. You may uh, not have noticed that this narrative is in the Bible elsewhere. Um, And so we're going to read through the narrative. And my aim here is to do two things. The first is to see how the narrator presents Isaac as like Abraham. And second is, because it's narrative, just reading through the passage is an important thing to do as we're preaching, just to get a handle on what the story actually says. Uh, so if you, make, if you want to make sure you have your Bibles open, uh, it is on page 27. We've stopped uh, having the same page number and chapter, which is a shame. It's very difficult now. So it's on page 27, but it's chapter 26 um, in the Red Church Bibles, that is. And you are welcome to flick back with me to chapters 12 and chapters 20, if you so desire. But I've not intended this to be a comparative thing. If you have fast fingers, you can flick back, uh, but you don't have to. Um, I have included some scripture references on the screen, so you can write them down if you would like to and look at it up later. So let's dig in. Let's dig into this narrative. Chapter 26. It seems likely that this narrative will have come chronologically before Jai's sermon last week. As in, obviously I'm preaching it after Jai's sermon, but the narrative in history came before what Jai preached. Um, Before Rebecca and Isaac have children, that's what I mean. And the first thing that we see is that Isaac, like his dad, Abraham, 
goes down to a foreign land and meets a foreign king there. Abraham, in chapter 12, goes to Egypt because of a famine and meets a pharaoh. And later he goes to a place called Gerar. And in this story, Isaac too goes to a place called Gerar and meets a man called Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in verse 1. Uh, This Abimelech, it would seem, uh, is a different Abimelech to the Abimelech of chapter 20. Uh, Abimelech would seem to be a uh, a regal name, like Pharaoh, or a dynastic name, like uh, Henry in our English monarchy. Um, So Abimelech is probably the grandson or the son of the previous Abimelech, just to clear up any confusion. Uh, Abraham and Isaac then both receive a command to be in Canaan, the promised land. Abraham is told to go to Canaan, whereas Isaac is told to remain in Canaan. Gerar is in Canaan, and the Lord appears to Isaac in verse 2 and says, don't go to Egypt, even though there's a famine, and it will be fertile and good for you to go there. Don't go there. Stay in Canaan, in Gerar. That's where I want you to be. And this is important because, in Genesis, land is important. And it shows that Isaac is now, if we were in any doubt, the receiver of the covenant promises of land, seed, and blessing. Okay? Isaac is, if we thought that he might not have been, the child of the promise. And we see in these first few verses when God says, stay in this land, I will be with you, I will bless you, your descendants, I will give these lands, blah, 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 blah. I shouldn't say blah, 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 blah. Uh, But you know this. We see that what he said to Abraham comes to Isaac as well. Okay? Isaac is now the child of the promise and has received those promises. Now, in response to those promises, Abraham, during his life, seemed to constantly oscillate between faithfulness and faithlessness. And here we see Isaac initially being faithful to God's covenant promises. Uh, In verse 6, this little verse just says, so Isaac stayed in Gerar. That could just be translated as, so Isaac was faithful. He did what God told him to do. But then from verse 7 onwards, we see that Isaac makes the same mistake as his dad. He pretends that Rebecca is his sister. He's afraid of what the uh, Philistines will do, both to him and to Rebecca, And so he lies in, in the hope that he won't get hurt, basically. He makes the same mistake. He doesn't trust that God will keep him safe. The remainder of this story um, then turns a little strange. Uh, with various wells uh, and covenants. And we're going to come back to look at this story in more detail in a moment, but for now we're just getting a handle on the narrative. The narrator makes it clear that somehow Abraham and Isaac are both the potential cause of guilt for a pagan nation if it was not for God's grace. Uh, I'll just repeat that one because it's a little confusing, and we will come back to it. Uh, Abraham and Isaac are the potential cause for guilt to a pagan nation if it was not for God's grace. And then, even more strangely, the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac, are the ones that end up being blessed by God with material wealth. Uh, Just look with me at verse 12. Isaac planted crops in that land, and in the same year he reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. 
Same thing happens to Abraham. Isaac is clearly the one who sins, but Abimelech is the one that confesses guilt, and Isaac is the one that becomes rich. Gets a bit odd. And then finally, Abraham and Isaac, they both end up having a dispute with with this pagan nation. I'm using the word pagan there. I just mean a foreign nation, really. Um, Yeah, that's all I mean. Isaac and Abraham both have a dispute with a foreign nation over wells. Uh, And then they subsequently make a covenant with that foreign nation. And then they have peace. And then finally, and possibly the most oddly, they both dig a well and they both call it Beersheba. (laughs) Who digs the well? Who calls it Beersheba? Um, They both do it. So it seems pretty clear to me that the narrator wants us to see that Isaac is just like his dad. Like Abraham, Isaac has faith. Like Abraham, Isaac lacks faith and makes the same mistake. Like Abraham, God blesses Isaac and the promises continue. And like Abraham, Isaac is a blessing to those around him. In other words, like father, like son. Right? Hopefully you can see on the screen. It does say like father, like son just at the bottom. So if you forget what this sermon is about, um, it says it there. But this narrative also, I think, presents God as the same. It gets us to see that it is not just human beings that behave in the same way with the covenant promises, but also God. God's promises continue to Isaac in much the same way that they, will, they related to Abraham. We asked two questions at the start. What will Isaac be like and what will God be like? To the first, we can now say Isaac is just human. He's human. He has a human dad, and he is human. To the second, we can now say that God is faithful to the covenant promises and is bringing about his promises to his people. Very good. I hope that that gives you a good handle on the narrative. I hope you can see what is going on there. But preaching through the book of Genesis can sometimes be a little bit difficult both to preach and to to listen to Because often, it can feel like you're saying the same thing over and over again. In a sense, this is good and right. As Christians, we we don't really want to be saying anything particularly different to what Christians have been saying for all of time. And it would probably be a disservice to the unity and integrity of the book of Genesis to be preaching random things each time we come to the book. But at the same time, as we're working through the book of Genesis it may not be the most helpful for us to have the same applicatory points every time we preach. I could probably preach this sermon and preach the same points that Jai preached last week. Um, And and, and maybe I should. Uh, But as I've been preparing to preach, and and I think this is helpful for you, I've been wanting to develop a bit of a method, really, for how to read the book of Genesis and really how to read in general uh, and, and this is what I have developed as I've prepared, and I think this will be helpful for you just to see what I've done. So, how to read Genesis. So I have checked this out with Luke and with Dad, so <laughs> I'm not just making this up. Um, so the first way we can look at Genesis is to look at the big picture stuff. Right? We can look at the grand narrative, the overall picture of what Genesis is trying to convey. Luke led us through a lot of this in his sermon. The book of Genesis opens with creation, 
and then describes the fall. And by the time we get to Abraham, Genesis is narrating God's plan to restore human beings back into a relationship with him. And he does this through covenants. He promises things to his people, uh, land, seed, and blessing, and he requires obedience from them in return. Genesis narrates the patriarch's response with with a mixture of obedience and disobedience, as we've seen in this narrative. So the big picture of Genesis really is God's plan to restore human beings back into a relationship with him through covenants, and then what are humans' response? Okay? Does that make sense? That's the big picture. Every story in Genesis points to that. And we could really end every sermon by saying that, because that's what it's all about. Obviously, in my, you might say different words, but that's roughly it. We could then, if we like, map that on to the big picture of the Bible as a whole, where these promises continue right through the Old Testament and culminate in the New, as we see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Covenant, keeping the call to be obedient, enabling us by his death to be active participants in a relationship with God, and inaugurating a new covenant, which is predicated on faith in him and expands the land, seed, blessing, promises, which is where we get the New Testament language of church. Don't worry, you don't have to write all of this down. (laughs) I can see people... You don't have to write all that down. I'm just wanting to say this is big picture stuff. This is, this is the grand meta-narrative, if you like, of Genesis. Every week we could stand at the front and say this, and hopefully we will. If ever you hear a sermon on Genesis which isn't referring to this kind of stuff, in, in whatever words it does, whether here or elsewhere, you'll probably know they're not actually preaching the text. But it's not the only way to preach through Genesis. And it's not the only way to preach through literature. One, when they're reading it, can zoom in on on specific stories that have specific localized applications. The narrative of Rebecca and Isaac getting married could be about God's plan to bring his promises to fruition and our call to be faithful to him, and it is. But it also could be about how to get a spouse. And how, to be, and how to trust God if you're wanting a spouse. The narrative of birthright stealing that we looked at last week could be about God's plan to bring his promises to fruition and our call to be faithful to him, which it is. Or it could also be, as Jai rightly brought out, don't trade God's goodness for a bowl of stew. So there are two ways to read Genesis. And our preaching in Genesis ultimately hopes to be a blend of understanding the big picture and zooming in on the specific aspects. I'm going to illustrate that by this. Two arrows. We're constantly, like their intention, big picture, zooming in. And whenever we zoom in, we want to be anchored by the big picture, and whenever we're looking at the big picture, we don't want to forget that the detail. Okay? Now, that's a fairly obvious point, and I don't really know why I'm saying it all from the front. Uh, mainly, I'm saying it because it's been helpful to me as I've prepared to know that I'm liberated to talk about some of the specific things and for you to know that as I do that, I'm not losing sight of the big picture. That's really why I'm doing this. So, with all that in mind, we're going to look at two big picture applications now and we're going to move through them rather quickly because essentially we're going to be saying them every single week and then we're going to dive into some of the specifics of the narrative and think in more detail about that. Okay? So that's the game plan. That's where we're going to go. And I hope that makes sense to you. And if you have any...
questions afterwards or you totally disagree with that, then please come and shout at, shout at me afterwards. So, big picture stuff. Two things that we can take from this narrative that are big picture. The first is this. God's promises are for those who have faith in his word, even in difficult circumstances. God's promises are for those who have faith in his word, even in difficult circumstances. Central to the narrative depiction in Genesis is that as covenant partners, the right response to God's promises is faith in God's word. Trusting, in God's dis- trusting that God's decisions are the best for us is how we are supposed to live. And then that is evident in our behavior. Sometimes that can feel very, 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 very hard. Abraham's call to sacrifice his son Isaac was absurd. Isaac's decision to remain in Gerar was counterintuitive. There was a famine going on. Why would I stay here? And both Abraham and Isaac's fear at pagan kings and what they would do to their wives was, in part, legitimate. The struggles that Isaac particularly wrestled with were, were, were natural disasters such as famine and the military threat of human nations. Isaac was faithful when it came to the famine. He remained in Gerar. But he was not faithful when it came to encountering other people. And our struggles as Christians may not be the same, but as Christians we can have testing times, can't we? We live in a world that doesn't agree with Christianity and sometimes, often, even despises Christianity. That can be very, very, very hard. Like Abraham and Isaac, we are sometimes called, we are sometimes feel battered by the forces that hold sway in our world. And this passage teaches us trust that God has it under control and trust in him. The second thing, big picture stuff, that this narrative teaches us is that God's promises are not dependent on our obedience because of God's grace. Sometimes we know, don't we, that we fail to trust in God's promises. Even people of great faith like Abraham and Isaac still, as we've seen, got things wrong. They doubt God and they make bad decisions. But God's promises are not bound by our obedience. In fact, God's promises often come true even because of our disobedience. Just look at the life of Jacob. Or even in the New Testament, the best example, Judas. When Isaac lacks faith in Gerar, God's blessing still comes to him. And a huge part of the narrative thrust here is that Isaac oscillates between faithfulness and faithlessness just as his father Abraham did, but God's promises always come true. When you're speaking to your non-Christian friends about your faith, do you believe, really truly believe, that God will give you the words to say? Luke chapter 21, 15 tells us that that is the case. I know I normally don't. I, I, I generally think that it's all down to my ability to know the answers and convey them eloquently to my friends. Knowing that God's promises to restore the earth to him are not down to my ability or knowledge and actually God uses me even in my weakness is hugely liberating. Bear in mind, these are big picture stuff. Every week we can say this same stuff. Have faith in God's promises, but God is also gracious when we mess up. 
every week. In fact, we could probably say that every Bible story we teach. They're big picture stuff. But now I would like us to zoom in on this story and think a little bit more in detail about some of the, some of the things. And as we do so, I want you to be anchored by that. that. <laughs> I want you to be anchored by what I've said. Okay? So let's do that now. Keep your, keep your fingers in the page, on page 27, because uh, we're going to go back to it. We've been thinking about God's promises of land, seed, and blessing, and their transition from Abraham to Isaac. And the narrative focus is on Isaac being just like his dad. And we've seen that the big picture encourages us as human beings, just like our ancient ancestors, to respond to God's faith, God's promises with faith and freedom from sin. But I think that this passage makes its focus that of blessing, the third of the promises that God gives to Abraham and to Isaac. And it's there that I want to focus today. And blessing can be thought about in two different ways. It's a bit of a weird word, blessing, sometimes. We, we kind of say it a lot, but we don't really know what it means. And because blessing is such a common theme in Genesis, I'd like us to really spend some time getting our teeth into what blessing actually is. And the first way in which we can think about blessing is that God's blessing is going to come to his chosen people. In this story, that is Abraham, Isaac, and his family. God says to Abraham in chapter 12 and verse 2, I will bless you. And this idea is repeated throughout Genesis. In our passage today, God repeats it to Isaac in verse 3. I will bless you. And partly, this blessing means the other two promises of land and seed. Blessing kind of covers those two other promises. Uh, it also means, in this, point of, in this point in time, a certain amount of material wealth and prosperity. Uh, if you look with me in verses 12 to 13, as we saw, it says that Isaac became rich because the Lord, what, blessed him. I'm not saying there that as Christians we always have material wealth and prosperity, but certainly it seems that in this passage, when God blesses you, that, that is part of what blessing entails. But this chapter, I think, really expands our understanding of blessing. And I want to give you a little bit of an illustration to show this. Think about a man who goes and travels the land to find the father of the person that he is dating to ask if the dad would give him his blessing to marry her. It's possibly not something that that's that common anymore. Uh, I don't know. Maybe Christians do it, but no one else does. Uh, the, a man who goes to the dad of the person he's dating and says, can I have your blessing to marry your daughter? What is the person doing there? Well, really, he is saying... Do you trust me enough to, to, to look after your daughter and to protect your daughter? A daughter, to a father, a father will, will, will love a daughter and raise a daughter and care for a daughter. And so when a, an outsider, someone he doesn't know, someone not part of the family comes in and says, can I marry your daughter and, and will you give me your blessing? The, 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 what he's saying is, do you, do you, it's not just do you like me, it's, do you trust me to look after your daughter and protect her and, 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 and care for her and love her? 
in, in, the, in like you have been doing, really. Does that make sense? And in verse 3 and in verse 23 of this story, God reaffirms the covenant promise to Isaac. And like all the times he reaffirms the promises, they're built upon. And here God says, I will bless you. But twice he also says, and for the very first time in Genesis, he says, I will be with you. He's not said that yet before in Genesis. Abimelech has said it about God, but this is the first time that God has actually promised divine presence. God is saying, I will be with you. I will look after you. I will protect you. And that has two dimensions. The first is earthly. Because God's presence is there, these people will be successful. They will have rest from their enemies. That's a common Old Testament theme. Having rest from enemies obviously involves some sort of material wealth. You can't defeat your enemies without any money. Uh, I don't think. And it also involves having land and having lots of people. But ultimately, God's blessing means rest, peace, prosperity, security. But it also has a spiritual meaning. God's presence cannot be with his people who are sinners. And so by God saying here that he will be with them, he is actually cancelling their debt of sin. We know, don't we, as Christians, that the New Testament teaches this is consummated in Jesus Christ. But here, God's blessing involves not just land and seed, but spiritual salvation and renewal. Isaac, if God is with him, is safe ultimately. Spiritually, he is safe. No matter what happens in his life, God's got his back, basically. I've tried to illustrate this with this diagram, which is pretty simple. The circle encapsulates it, I think. God's people safe in God's presence. Okay? So God being with Isaac is a big deal. It's like being five years old and walking through a shopping center with all the busyness of everything that's going on when you're five years old, holding hands with your mum. That's what it's like. Safe in your mum's presence. Whatever happens to you when you're five years old in a shopping centre, whoever comes over to talk to you, you're safe because you're not alone. It's like being married and being safe and secure because you know that the person you're married to loves you. And they want to protect you. And when you're in their presence, you feel secure and safe. We get this wonderful, beautiful picture that, that, that surfaces in this passage of Isaac dwelling in safety because of God's presence. That picture does encompass land and seed. It encompasses rest from enemies. It encompasses material wealth. But it primarily refers to safety and peace because God is with them. And that is most fully true on the spiritual plane. This is true for us too, as well. God promises that he will be with us. But we don't always think 
in such a way? Have you ever wondered or ever thought about when someone says, bless you, when you sneeze? If they are meaning, God bless you, maybe, what they are saying is, no matter what, even if you have the plague, (laughs) you are safe. That doesn't mean that you won't get hurt sometimes. That doesn't mean that bad things won't happen to you, but it means that ultimately you are in God's protection and care. That's what God's blessing looks like when it comes to his people. But that is not the only way we can think about God's blessing in this passage. Sometimes, in this passage, actually, blessing is not just for God's people. Sometimes people can read the book of Genesis and they can think that it is exclusivistic or even racist. Why would God choose a specific group of people to give his blessings to at the expense of all the other groups? There's only one group called Israelites. Why not all the other groups that end in Ike? Why not? Uh, It is Richard Dawkins who very famously calls God a bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. It's, a, it's, it's stark language, but it's something that you can look at this passage and you can think, why? Why would God choose Isaac and not anybody else? Now, we don't know all the answers to a question like that of why God would choose to reveal himself through a particular people. But Dawkins' argument and that argument is, I think, a huge misunderstanding of the book of Genesis in which actually God's blessing is supposed to come to the rest of the world. In Genesis chapter 12... In verse 2, when the promise first comes to Abraham, God says to him that he will bless him so that you will be a blessing. Even more starkly, in the next verse, God clarifies that and says to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's That's quite something. All the families of the earth. And I think Genesis is being not just spatial, but temporal. Everybody who has ever lived and existed will be blessed because of you. That's, that's quite a claim. There's a real focus on Genesis on even the covenant promises extending to foreigners. Genesis 17 has Abraham circumcising foreigners in his household that he has bought, essentially slaves, but people who are not part of his family. Similarly, we're told that Ishmael, who is explicitly not the child of the promise, as we saw last week, he will be blessed in 17 verse 20, and God, in a wonderful passage, stoops down to protect Hagar and Ishmael in Genesis chapter 1. His arms cover them and encompass them and they are safe in his presence. Our chapter today places a great focus, as does much of Genesis, on Isaac being a traveller in foreign lands. God's people at this point in history do not yet have a home. They live as nomads in the territory of other people. Abimelech owns this land. And if Isaac went to the promised land, the Hittites would own that land. In many ways, this whole chapter is about God's people and their relationship to the people around them. 
Again, as God reaffirms the blessing to Isaac, he says in verse 4, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And if we think about blessing as God's presence, he's saying there that by all the nations can know God through you, Isaac. So the point here, I think, is that God has chosen a people with whom he can dwell in order to bring his presence to the whole world. Okay? God's people, safe in God's presence, outward. It's not inward, but outward. And eventually, I think, that God's plan is for the world to look something like this. Do you get that? Go back. God's people safe in God's presence, outward to people who then can be safe in God's presence. Does that make sense? But at this point in the story, this is what it looks like now. And understanding that God's plan is for his chosen people, at, that point, at this point, this is Isaac, to be the vehicle of God's blessing to the rest of the world really, really, really helps us get a handle on this passage. Or at least it helps us get a handle on one specific bit of this passage. By blessing, bear in mind, I mean presence. And by presence, I mean grace, really. God dwelling with his people, and it is good. Think to the Garden of Eden. Adam walking in the Garden of Eden with God. That's what I mean by presence. Communion. Relationship. Being safe from God and because of God. So let's now take a look at this narrative with this zoomed-in lens. I'm not wanting to say anything different to what I said earlier from the big picture. This is zooming in on this idea of blessing. And as already noted, and we noted it was a bit strange, the actions of Abraham and Isaac do have... Oops. Yes, that's right. God's people are here. Uh, as already noted, the actions of Abraham and Isaac have spiritual ramifications for the people around them, the pagan nations, the foreign nations. We said we'd come back to it, and here we are. In chapter 20, Abraham journeys in a foreign land, meets a foreign king, pretends that his wife is his sister. The foreign king then thinks, great, a single woman, uh, goes with her, we don't, the narrative doesn't really tell us, it doesn't tell us that he slept with her, but he, he kind of asked for her and sent for her, and then God comes to Abimelech in the night and says, you are a dead man. It's quite bold, when Abimelech surely, surely didn't know what was going on. Surely ignorance is bliss, right? Abraham's sin somehow conferred guilt onto the pagan nation. And that was manifest in tangible ways. All the women in Abimelech's court became barren. In chapter 26, our passage, Abimelech doesn't take Rebekah as his predecessor did to Sarah, but he recognizes that if he had, he would be guilty. Just look at verse 10. Then Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the men might have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. Not just on yourself, but us. 
And he, and he orders Isaac out of his land so that none of his men would commit the sin. It seems strange that God seems to be punishing Abimelech for Isaac's sin until we realize that Isaac is God's chosen people as the vehicle for God's blessing for the world. The question of whether Isaac is faithful or not does not just have implications for him and his family. The question of whether Isaac is faithful or not has implications for the surrounding people. When God's people are unfaithful, the surrounding nations suffer. Does that make sense? I think that is what the narrator is trying to say here in verses 1 to 11, particularly from verse 7, as Isaac sins. If God's people don't respond with faith to his covenant promises, then people who are not part of God's family will suffer somehow because of that. What happens next in the story, as we read on, is that we find that the relationship between the nations and God's people has collapsed. In verse 14, we're told that the Philistines uh, envy uh, Isaac. He's become rich and they envy him because of it. In verse 16, we see that Abimelech casts Isaac out of the land. And in verse 15... The narrator interjects to let us know that the men of Gerar have filled in all of the wells that Abraham had dug. Wells were literally a sign, a symbol of the peace between Abraham and Abimelech. Now, they've been dug up, filled in, gone. Isaac then starts the rebuilding process. If you turn over the page in your Bibles... He redigs the wells of his father. Initially, this is quite hard. He encounters strife with the men of Gerar, with the first two wells. They're not happy. But eventually, he is able to dig a well with no problems. Wells, in, the, in this period of history, were a precious commodity. Without a well, without water, you ain't going to survive in the desert. And Isaac rightly interprets this as God's blessing on him. God's presence, God God coming down to him and wrapping his arms around him and saying, yes, you've got this wrong, but you are safe because I am with you. Here's a well. And Isaac praises God. At this point, in, um, in verse 23, as it goes to Beersheba, which is the place of the Abrahamic Abimelech covenant, of chapter 21. And a God then appears to Isaac by night in a theophany. And he says to Isaac, here is the blessing. Here is the promise. Here is the covenant. He reaffirms the covenant to Isaac. He says, yes, you've got it wrong in Gerar. Yes, you have not showed faith to me there. But I'm going to reaffirm the covenant with you. And, and as we've seen, he's, that God says, do not be afraid. I am with you. This section, I think, from verse 12 to 25, is all about the reaffirmation of the covenant. And specifically, it's the reaffirmation of God's presence to Isaac. 
Isaac had failed to trust in God's presence, with, which was a catastrophic error of judgment with almost catastrophic consequences for him and for the people around him. But by God's grace, those consequences haven't happened, and God has come down to Isaac and he says, I am with you, you are safe, trust in me. And now Isaac is living in a right relationship with God. He's enjoying the blessing of God's presence. He becomes rich, uh, and God gives him room. What does it say um, uh, in verse 22? When he finds the well, he says, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. He starts living as he should. He builds an altar, showing his faith. And Abimelech turns up once again. don't really know why Abimelech turns up. It seems like a rather official meeting. He brings along uh, his personal advisor and, rather worryingly, the commander of his forces. Isaac will have been thinking, oh, my word, <laughs> what is going on? Abimelech, comes, he, he, he's decided he's going to wipe me out. Why not? But Abimelech does not come and attempt to conquer him militarily, militarily. He's diplomatic with Isaac. He actually comes with peace. Let's just read verse 28 onwards to see what Abimelech actually says. He says this, We saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said there ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you that you will do us no harm, just as we did not harm you, but always treated you well and sent you away peacefully. And now... You are the blessed. You are blessed by the Lord. Do you get that? Because Isaac is blessed by God and responds with faithfulness, Abimelech comes to him and says, we can see that your God is good. Your God is sovereign. We've kicked you out into the desert with nothing and somehow you've become rich. We can see that your God is in charge. We can see that your God is with you. We can see that you are the blessed of the Lord. The point that I'm trying to get across here is as Isaac and Abimelech make make peace with another oath and they eat and they drink together and Isaac sends them on their way in peace, the point that I'm trying to get at here is when God's people are faithful, to to God's promises, the surrounding nations are able to recognize God for who he is. The text leaves it unsaid as to whether Abimelech is a genuine believer or not. Some people think that he is from these verses, but I think it is unsaid. But the bottom line is that when God comes and dwells with his people and his people respond with faithfulness to that 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 dwelling, when they respond living in safety and peace and they trust in him instead of fearing, the people around them look in at that and they go, yes, that's good. I want some of that. They, They have the choice to either recognize God through God's people or to reject God through God's people. Sometimes they will reject God. And there are countless stories in the Bible of of people being faithful and, and, and then the nations rejecting God. But they have the choice. Isaac here is ultimately the vehicle 
for God's blessing to come to the world. That is one thing that this passage is wanting to, is wanting to get us to see, I think. And you will notice that everything that is on the screen there is also true for the church today. In the New Testament, the church is God's people. And I mean they're the global church, Christians all over the world. We don't particularly need to get into the narrative of the Old Testament and how Israel becomes the church The new covenant that is inaugurated with Jesus Christ means that God's dwelling place is the church. That's what Ephesians 2, verse 22 tells us. And all of this stuff about blessing the nations applies to the church. When Jesus says in Matthew 28, which we only looked at recently in our sermon series, to go and make disciples of all nations, he is meaning that the global church is God's choice to be the vehicle for God's blessing, God's presence, God's grace to everybody else in the world. Which is pretty crazy. We said at the start that the big picture stuff of this text is about living faithfully under God's covenant. That is what it's about. Zooming in to this specific narrative tells us that living faithfully in God's covenant is not just important because God tells us to do so, but actually because the spiritual well-being of our friends and the people around us depends on our faithfulness. We can map what we said about Isaac in this passage onto the church today. When the church is unfaithful, the surrounding nations, people, we don't really use the word nations, do we, to describe the people that we live next to, but the surrounding people suffer. And when the church is faithful, the surrounding people are able to recognize God for who he actually is. When people who are not Christians look at the church and they see God's people living in safety, in security, with peace in their hearts... They don't live perfectly. We know this. We're a church. We're people. We know we don't live perfectly. But when when people outside see the church living faithfully under God's promises, they go, wow, I want some of that. When non-Christians, people who are not Christians, look into the church and they see strife and hypocrisy, that is a very damaging thing. We also said, and it's worth saying now at the start, that God's promises are true, this is big picture, despite our weaknesses and unfaithfulness. And whether we like it or not, God's plan is to use the church to bring people into a relationship with him. And he will do it. Our inadequacies, our weaknesses, our fears, our sins do not prevent God from fulfilling that promise. This gives us a great liberty not to worry, and to embrace God's call to live as a blessing to the people around us. Are you an anxious Christian? I can be. Rest in God's promises. It's not all down to you. Are you a fearful evangelizer? Isaac was. He was very, very fearful. Be confident in God's promises. He promises to be with you. And no matter what happens in this world, you are safe. It is, and I'm not wanting to say that it isn't, very, very hard at times. 
I'm not here wanting to say that you won't be rejected. You, you will be. <laughs> Many of the people in the Bible were rejected. And it is not down to our lack of faith that people always reject Christianity. Don't, please don't think that that is what I'm saying. I'm, but I'm merely making the point that when human beings live faithfully under God, responding to God's promises with, with, with security and faith, and they have peace, and there is grace in their lives, and there is restored relationships with the people around them, other people who are not part of God's family look at that, and they have the opportunity to say, yes, I can now see what God is like, and I want to trust him too. Or they can say, no thanks, and they leave. God calls us to faithfully take the good news to the people around us. And we do that with God's promises ringing in our ears. Let me try and make this even more explicit, if it haven't already. Members of Rotherham Evangelical Church. <laughs> when REC is faithful to God's covenant promises, the people of Rotherham are able to recognize God. We are talking about people that lived in the Middle East thousands of years ago. But we're also talking about people that live in Rotherham today. We're talking about people that don't know God. We're talking about people who live in a world that is sometimes really confusing. And the world gives us answers that just don't quite satisfy. And we don't know what to do with it. Live faithfully under God's covenant. Because that is how God has designed it to bring blessing to people in Rotherham. If you are part of the life group that lives in Aston, it is your job to be talking to people in Aston and bringing God's blessing to them. It's scary, I know. <laughs> I feel scared. If you live in the centre of Rotherham, that is your calling. If you are Iranian and you are part of our church and you are a Christian, then that is your calling. To bring God's blessing to people in Rotherham. Whether you are a man or a woman or a child or an adult, whether you are a new Christian or have been a Christian a very long time, whether you feel like you're really, really good at it or whether you feel like you're really, really bad at it, your call from God, from this passage, is to live faithfully and be a blessing to people around you. How does this actually work? <laughs> Sometimes in church we say a lot of things and it's very inspiring and then we leave and we go, man, I don't know how to actually do that. How does this actually work? How do I actually act as the vehicle for God's grace to Rotherham? Well, in order for it all to make sense, whoops, I would like us, I would like to point you to Jesus Christ. These stories, they make sense on their own. And I hope you can see that. But they have ultimate fulfillment in the New Testament. And so I would like to point you to Jesus Christ and look at what it, is, what it looks like to live as a church with Christ at the center. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is the true Abraham and the true Isaac and the true Israel. All of these guys that we're looking at in these stories, they are types of Christ. All the nation of Israel and the covenant promises are really all about one man. 
In the Garden of Eden, God tells the serpent that one day, one man is going to crush sin. And the nation of Israel is really but a foretaste of Christ. It shows us that human beings cannot enter God's presence by themselves. We need a Messiah. We need a Savior. God makes these promises to, uh, and this covenant to Abraham, to Isaac, and, and, and yeah, they do well sometimes, but they fail to fully keep it. Jesus received the same covenant that Abraham and Isaac received and should have kept. Jesus remained faithful and enjoyed the glorious presence of his Father. Like human sons are just the images of their human fathers, so too is Christ the image of his heavenly Father. And he lived in a perfect, glorious relationship with God the Father. There you go. Jesus, safe in God's presence. Turn with me, if you will, to Colossians chapter 1. I uh, need to find it. There are a number of places we can go in the New Testament um, to illustrate some of this, and I have no idea whether Colossians is a good place to go or not, um, or whether it is helpful, but I think it illustrates some of this. Colossians chapter 1, it's on page 1182 in the Red Church Bibles. And in verse 15, we're talking about Jesus Christ. We've actually preached through this very recently in our church, I believe. Uh, so some of this may be familiar. And this, these verses say in verse 15, Colossians chapter 1, The Son, that's Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. If you like, a terrible translation would be, like father, like son. <laughs> Jesus images his father. He is like his father, and we see the father because of Jesus. And the verses go on. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. We'll stop there for a second. Jesus is the creator of everything. And he enjoys wonderful relationship with his father because they are one. He lives safe in God's presence. We said that the church is the place where God dwells. Look with me at verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, in him. That means that Jesus is fully God, but it means that they live in perfect communion. And yet, as we know, Jesus was taken by the, the authorities, the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities of his day, and nailed to a cross of wood. He ceased to be safe in God's presence. Can you see that? He bore the wrath of God on his shoulders. The punishment for all the times we have failed to be the covenant partners that we were supposed to be. For all the times where we, like Isaac and Abraham, walk in fear instead of faith. He bore the punishment so that we could enter into God's presence in Christ and enjoy God's blessing as we were made to enjoy it. Do you get that? All of this Old Testament narrative points forward to a time when Jesus will bear the punishment for us so that we can enter into the right relationship with God in Christ. What, what do these verses say? Verse 20. 
and through all things to reconcile to himself. Sorry, through him to reconcile to himself all things by making what? Peace. Peace through his blood shed on the cross. Here, Jesus is the chosen vehicle to bring God's blessing to the world. And his cross, the cross, his sacrifice, is how he does it. The resurrection then means that he is king and lord over all of the earth, and it means that we now live in a right relationship with God. Abraham and Isaac, although they didn't know it was Jesus, had faith that God would make it right. When God says, I will be with you, they had faith. And that faith is credited to them as righteousness, as we've seen. If we put our trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, he restores us back to a relationship with him, and we enjoy the blessings of being in God's presence. In other words, Jesus is the mediator between us and God. And as we rest in God's presence, we are then able to do exactly what God commanded to share with the rest of the world the beauty and the joy of being in God's presence in Christ. Do you, get, can you, you may be able to see the slight change that I've made to the diagram. God's presence, God's people, safe in God's presence, in Christ. I couldn't fit because of Christ in, so in Christ. And because of that, they go out to the rest of the world, and the rest of the world see that that is good. Our job, therefore, as vehicles of God's grace to people in Rotherham, is not to tell people how bad they are, and it's not to tell people that they're okay and that everything's fine, And it's not to preach hellfire and damnation. Our job as vehicles of God's grace to Rotherham is to point people to Jesus Christ and his saving work on the cross. And when we do that, people can share and join in. We do that in two ways. The first, obviously, is by confidently telling people about Jesus Christ. That is a command in scripture, and there's a promise attached to it, that God will be with us, and that he will give us the words to say. Do we think like that? Do you think like that? Do you think that when you tell your friends and family about Jesus Christ, we're giving them actual good news? (laughs) Sometimes we don't. Or do we fear that as we live as travelers in a land that that does not believe what we believe, that we will be rejected? The second way in which we do this is by modeling grace in our church community. Be a community of grace because that is attractive. Today, after church, when someone says to you, which they probably will, what has your week been like? Your answer should not be the answer that is most socially acceptable, but an honest answer of what your actual week has been like. Knowing that if somebody else responds and they are part of the community of grace, they will not respond with judgment or hierarchy thinking that they're better or worse than you, but they will respond with grace. Let us all, as broken sinners made new in Christ, love and encourage one another. Do this in your workplace, in your school, in your family who are not Christians. Model grace. Model peace. It is attractive. As we close, I want us to see that we human beings are all like our fathers. What I mean by that and what the narrator, I think, means in this story 
is that we're all human and we're all made in the image of Adam as well as in the image of God. We're all sinners. Isaac wasn't some sort of special kid because he was the child of the promise. Far from it. Remarkably, he actually committed the same sin that his dad did. It's a bit dull. (laughs) And the book of Genesis seeks to make this clear as we move from Isaac to Jacob to his 12 sons to the nation of Israel and right through the Bible, we are all people who need God's grace. If you are not a Christian today, welcome. We hope that you enjoy our church. We hope that you enjoy coming. We hope that you find it welcoming. And I would encourage you today, turn to the person next to you, if they are a Christian, and ask them how they came to faith. They will tell you a story of God's grace in their life. It might be a bit confusing. It might be a bit messed up. But they will tell you a story of God's grace in their life. Christians are not people who have it all sorted. They are a community of people who God has chosen to bring his message of salvation to the world. And as a non-Christian, you are welcome to reject that. And many people in the Bible story do at their own cost. But as you listen, listen to your Christian friend's story of grace in their life, you will realize that what they are doing is they are not lording it over you And what they are doing, and more importantly what God is doing, is actually offering you a hand of salvation. You can know God, and you can know true peace and security that comes from being in God's presence through this weak Christian individual. And you can then be grafted into God's family, and then play a part in telling the rest of the world about your story as well. You will have become one of God's chosen vehicles for God's grace to come to the world. And if you are a Christian today, I've already given you a few applications. Extend that hand of salvation to the world. Confidently live, trusting God's promises, obeying God's commands, free from fear, and knowing that it is you, as part of the church, that God will use to bring his salvation to the whole world. Praise God for his grace in your life and model that grace to people that you know. Let the riches of God's blessing and the riches of his presence enable you to live confidently and live a life of faith to the glory of God and to the advancement of his kingdom. Amen. Amen. Shall we pray as we finish? Shall we do that now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this book of Genesis. Lord, we thank you that in it you give us the lives of these individuals who just are so human. They live and they walk and they do things, they have relationships, they, 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 they get given promises by God and then they oscillate between faithfulness and faithlessness. And, and, and Lord, it is refreshing as we read it to realize that there are other people like us. In fact, all people are like us. Lord, help us to understand the big picture of this Genesis story and to live faithfully as covenant partners with you. And when we don't live faithfully, help us to know that you are a God of grace. And Lord, help us to see in this particular chapter the extra special calling to live faithfully, to be a blessing to those around us. Lord, I pray for our work colleagues and our friends the people that don't know you, the people that live in in, in this confusing world with all the different 
worldviews and ways to live, Lord, I pray that you would help us be shining beacons of hope to our world. Lord, it is hard. Give us strength, give us wisdom, and give us peace as we do that. And Lord, as we sing now, help us just to worship you, the God who, despite all that we have done, has made it possible for us to come into a relationship with you, and that is glorious and rich and wonderful. And we thank you for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 We're going to sing now, so do stand as the music starts, as we normally do.